On today's show, we talk about Charlie Starkweather and Carl Brown. You are now listening to Bad in the Boondocks, baby. Bad in the boondocks Bad in the boondocks People put it down But what you're supposed to do In a small town Bad in the boondocks Bad in the boondocks Lord have mercy Can't help being Bad in the boondocks Hey, and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks, your unique true crime podcast. First of all, let us start out by saying that we are so sorry that we are a day late, but life just got with us today. Also, first off, let me just say thanks to people that have left reviews. We are at with the Apple reviews. We are very late getting with it. We don't get them until... God knows, sometimes we don't even get them, I don't think. But on CastBox, I know we had at least one person that left us ratings or slash reviews, which is still not to be seen on it. Don't know what's going on with the CastBox app. They freaking suck. But South Bay Homie, I want to thank you for sending that Review slash rating. Don't know because it's still not on there, but you said you sent a glowing one, so thank you very much, South Bay homie. Also, moving on to iTunes. We want to thank Blondie3575. That's Blondie3575 for her four-star rating. We're going to get that extra star from you to make that five. I guarantee you we're going to keep it up. Also, JKL5876. Five-star review. Um, I'm going to read this one. So different. I've listened to every true crime podcast I can find. You guys are a breath of fresh air. Sometimes not in this room, I'll tell you that. I don't normally like humor in true crime podcasts, but you guys do it in a way that's not disrespectful to the victims. Love your accents, love your podcast, and even your song at the beginning. It's all a bit rough around the edges. You have no idea. But oddly, it works. Keep it up. Can't wait to listen to more. You guys sound like you'd be fun to hang out with. You know what? We would be fun to hang out with. Um... And yes, we are very rough around the edges. We are from the boondocks, and it's rough around every edge around this part. But um, thank you for your five-star review. So keep them coming, guys. Send us those reviews, those ratings, those suggestions. Send us some suggestions. We do not mind constructive criticism. We want to be better so that you love us, not just like us. So, um... Also, if you want free stickers, those of you that sent us reviews, email us. You can email us at badintheboondocks at gmail.com. And um, give us your address. We'll send you some cool stickers. 
All right. Reminder, we're going to be at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago, Illinois. I think that's July the 13th. Does that sound right? Yep, that's right. Okay. Um, come, we want to meet y'all. Also, our website, badintheboondocks.com. You can go there and do just about anything to us or with us that you want. To us? <laughs> yeah. Um, like I said, sorry for us being a day late. We will try our darndest to not let it happen again. And I hope that you forgive us. If not, sorry. Nothing I can do now. But I think it is. Oh, yes, I forgot. As always, I am one of your hosts, Stan, the man. And I'm Drew. Drew the what? I don't I don't, yeah, know, I don't know Drew the pew. Drew the pew. <laughs> no. And it's not smelling very fresh in here this today. I don't know what's it's not, going on. It's not for me. And there's only one other person in here, and that's you, so. Hmm. Okay. Have you checked down there lately? Is it all right? I know I scrubbed a couple of days ago. <laughs> okay. It's hard to check. I'm going to have to do some hitch trimming, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Anyway, I do believe that it is Drew the Pooh's turn to go first. Am I correct in that? Yeah, it is. All right. What you got for us, Drew Pooh? Um, I'm going to be talking about Charlie Starkweather. Well, um, he was born on November 29, 1938, in Lincoln, Nebraska, to Guy and Kelly Starkweather. While growing up, he was modest and lived in a respectable home, which makes it odd for him to become a serial killer. He was hardworking and had parents who provided, along with their seven children. Wow, that's a lot of children. Yeah, I know. Um, One is a lot of children, if you ask me. People who knew Charles as a child described him as a well-behaved and mild-mannered, but once he started school, the deadly monster inside him grew. Charlie was born (laughs) bow-legged. Poor thing. What What is that noise? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Poor poor Charlie, the bow-legged. I know. My daddy's bow-legged. <laughs> well, um... It's like he's riding a horse every time he walks. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he endured um, some challenges as a child. I bet he did. I bet. And can you relate? Can you relate to that? I cannot. Wait. Can I? Oh, God. I don't know. No, I... Wait, oh, never God. Just Shut go. Go Shut ahead. I think that answered it all. (laughs) No, man. Well, along with those other things, he also developed a speech impediment. Oh, and that's always hard on children. Well, he was picked on by his classmates. What kind of speech impediment was it, do you know? Was it a lisp? I'm not sure. Or stuttering? I don't know. I, I don't know. But, um, you can look it up and find it out. 
if you'd like. I might do that. I would have thought maybe you had done that. I mean, it just says speech impediment. Uh, I didn't go any further, but um, um, he was he also suffered from severe myopia. What's that? Well, it says it prevented him from seeing objects twenty feet away. Hmm. But I'm not so sure. It's the thing. Yeah, but I'm not sure where they get that twenty feet number from. Who knows? It's very specific. Yeah, it is. Um, he thought of by his teachers of being slow, but he had a 110 IQ. I mean, that's nothing to brag right home about. No, but it's, it's not. Normal. But it's I mean, normal. He shouldn't not have been slow. slow. Yeah. He was 15 when his poor sight was diagnosed, but it was too late, and his education was severely lacking. In middle school, he sat in the back of the class and. Hated every minute of being there. But once he got to gym class, he shined and developed into a coordinated athlete. Instead of using his um, abilities for good, though, he became the school bully. And as he grew older, anyone who even looked at him wrong would pay the consequences. Once Charlie turned 16, he dropped out of high school and began working at a warehouse. Charlie began a fascination with James Dean, who was in the movie classic East of Eden, and even started dressing like him, wearing tight jeans and cowboy boots with the slicked-back hair. And not to let's remember, the bow-legged legs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had developed into a um, moody ego-driven um, driven defense troublemaker, and had little control over his quick temper. Now, um, Carol Fugate, she was the 13-year-old younger sister of Charlie's best friend's girlfriend. Charlie and Carol started dating, and they were infatuated with each other, and it didn't take long before word got out that they were a couple. After several run-ins with his boss, though, at the warehouse, he finally left and began working as a trash collector. This allowed Charlie and Carol to spend more time together. A rumor went around that they were going to get married and have a baby. Aww. And Carol's parents were not happy with that. They hated Charlie and tried to stop the relationship, but of course that didn't stop them from seeing each other. It never does. No. You just go behind their back, and it usually is worse. Exactly. The thing would have been to let him come over, and then they could have kept an eye on the two. Yeah. Be like, close your bow-legged self up and get away <laughs> from my dog. <laughs> I see that bow-legged spread and close up. <laughs> By now, Charlie's life was falling apart. Um, his father <clears throat> kicked him out of the house. The Carol's parents hated him, and he lost his job as a sanitation worker and got locked out of his room for not paying rent. <laughs> out of his room, so he only had like a one-room place to live in? Well, Probably, he, might, he his, could have been staying in that hotel. I th no, because it's rent. Oh, yeah, you can pay rent for, for some hotels. For, for some hotels, okay. Charlie was depressed and thought he had no future except with Carol. On December 1st, 1957, Robert Colbert, age 21, was working at the Crest gas station. 
when Charlie robbed, kidnapped, then shot him in the back of the head on a dirt road outside Lincoln, Nebraska. The next day, Charlie told Carol about the murder. She did not care and wanted to still see him, and this made him think their relationship was sealed. Signed, sealed, delivered. Mm-hmm. On January 21st, 1958, he decided to try and fix his relationship with the Carroll's family. So he went over to their house to invite her stepfather, Marion Bartlett, to go hunting. He also brought the mother, Velda Bartlett, two pieces of carpet. The Bartlett's were still angry after thinking their daughter was pregnant by Charlie, and an argument broke out. Charlie shot Velda in the face and Marion in the back of the head. Um, he left no witnesses, and then he slashed the throat repeatedly of Carol's sister. Then, to make sure that they were all dead, he went back and stabbed them all again. He put Velda's body inside the toilet of the family outhouse, and he was making a statement that she was literally a piece of shit. He then put Carol's sister, Betty Jean's body, inside a box of garbage and also placed her in the outhouse. Marion's body was left on the floor of the chicken coop. For some reason, Carol still stayed with him, and they spent six days honeymooning in her dead parents' house. Cheap. It sure is cheap, ain't it? Um, on the front of the house was a sign that said, Stay away, everybody is sick with the flu. Are you serious? They actually put a sign up. <laughs> they actually did, so that <laughs> nobody... But... Um, I this didn't really stop because um, the friends and family of no, because the then you're gonna be like, "Are you okay?" Exactly. But the friends and family of the Bartlets were not buying it, and they had police come and do a search of the house. But by then, they had fled. Charlie and Carol made it to Bennett, Nebraska, where August Mayer, age seventy, and a longtime friend of Charlie lived. After the car broke down, they made their way on foot to Myers' house. There was a confrontation when they got there, and Myers was found dead with half of his head missing from a shotgun blast. They ate, loaded up his guns, and headed by foot to the nearest main road to find a car. The couple got a ride with Robert Jensen Jr., age 17, and 16-year-old Carol King. So another carol. Yeah. They then forced them to go to a torn down school and then forced them into the storm cellar. There, Charlie shot Jensen six times in the back of the head and King one time. When police found the bodies, King's pants had been pulled down and her genitals had been slashed. Charlie later stated that Carol was responsible for the slashing. For some uh, reason, the couple took Jensen's car and headed back to Lincoln. They spotted the police cars outside um, Carol's family home, and then they went to the more Ritchie side of town. One of the homes there belonged to C. Lawyer Ward, age 47, and his wife Clara Ward, age 47. He was one of the wealthiest men in town. On January 30, 1958, eight days on the run, 
Charlie and Carol forced their way into the Ward's home. When they walked in, there was Clara and the living maid, Lillian (laughs) Fincil. I think that's how you say it. Charlie said that they were not in danger and ordered Claire to fix breakfast. After eating, he tied each woman up in separate bedrooms and then stabbed them to death. Claire's dog was barking the entire time, so he crushed its neck with his rifle. Oh. Yeah. When um, C. Laura Ward returned... (laughs) From work, he faced the same fate as the women, except he was shot to death. So, he did not face the same thing. No, he faced faced the same death. No, not the same death. Not the same death, he faced death. Right. Not the same way at all. Be quiet, be quiet. Charlie and Carol took the ward's car and decided to get out of town. When the bodies were discovered, the governor put the FBI and the National Guard on the case to find them. Charlie decided to get rid of the car after their description was on the radio. Radio? Yeah. I like how you said that. Radio? Merle Collision, I don't know what kind of name that is, but Merle Collision was a traveling shoe salesman who decided to stop to take a nap on the side of the road. Charlie switched this cars. This was very weird back in the... What? Back in the day. People just... I know, they just stopped. Stopped to take a nap take on Take a side. nap. <laughs> Today you get arrested for that. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. It's according to where you're at. Around here? No. Mm. You could sleep for days. You any, yeah, you could do about anything around here. You might get. You might wake up and your you'd be up on blocks because everybody took your tires. <laughs> that, that you'd is, be buying your own tires is, back at the yeah, flea market. That is something that would happen to us. You walk to the flea market and buy your own tires back. <laughs> oh my god, that's exactly what would happen to us, man. They um, Charlie ended up switching cars with him. And shot him in the head nine times. Hmm. A little overkill for everything, isn't it? Just just a wee bit. Um, Collision had a push pedal emergency brake, and Charlie didn't know how to work it. So Hmm. push pedal emergency emergency brake. Maybe push the pedal. So well, he took off with his little girlfriend, and um, was she little or big? I mean, they were still. Young at this time. They but I'm still, saying you didn't say if she, so she was a little girl. Like they she were was still little. teenagers. You can be overweight and be a teenager. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So, um. But you just said his little girlfriend, so I'm assuming she's tiny. I'm trying to find. You didn't give her weight. They were still teenagers. I'm not talking about her age. Oh, okay. That's I'm cool. talking about her size because you keep, you said little. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> No, I was meaning... Young. Yes, young, but I meant she... Okay, whatever. You're still a teenager. Just keep your mouth shut. Yeah, but young teenager. Like, like around six... Like, he was around... Like, like He was around, like, 16. Oh. And so, two was, years she, younger she than you. she was around somewhere along the So, two years team. younger than you. <laughs> whatever, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I was just getting that clear. I didn't... 
really understand. That's good to know okay, now. Okay, sure. Yeah. All right. Can I continue? If you please. Thank you. Um. Th- well, the car stalled, and a person stopped help, and he was met with the rifle to the face. So then the um two began to wrestle, and Sheriff William Romer drove up on them. Carol jumped from the front seat, pointed at Charlie, and said he killed a man. God, she's so dirty today. That he she did him dirty. She wasn't about to get caught. But um Charlie then jumped into the Packard, which was the car that they originally stole, and took off with Romer on his tail. More officers joined the chase and one of them shot um through the win- the back window, and a piece of the glass cut Charlie, and he thought that he had been shot, so he pulled over and surrendered. <laughs> <laughs> what a pussy, man. Um, where was I even at? Once in custody, the authorities had a time piecing together who did what out of Charlie and Carol. Carol, of course, told the police that she had been held captive all this time and had nothing to do with it. This That story was never believed and it was thrown out. Both were charged with first-degree murder and were extradited to Nebraska to stand trial. An insanity plea came up and was shut down by Charlie because he wanted everybody to know that he was sane at the time of the killings. Just love. Yeah. And by later. <laughs> The jury found him guilty on two charges of first-degree murder and recommended that he be put to death in the electric chair. The court agreed that he was sentenced to die on June 25, 1959. Now, as for Carol, Charlie stopped protecting her and told the um, authorities all that she did. He testified against her in court, although it was pointed out by her defense that he had changed his story at least seven times in the past. Few believe Carol's defense of being a victim, and she was found guilty of murdering Robert Jensen Jr. and given a life sentence because of her age. In the years following her sentencing, she continued to insist that she was a victim. Her sentence was later commuted and... She was paroled in June of 1976. Except for one interview, Carol never spoke publicly about her time spent with Charlie. On June 25, 1959, Charlie's execution was on schedule. Early in the evening, he had ordered cold cuts for his final meal. He was asked if he wanted to donate his eyes, which he said, I thought he had terrible (laughs) eyesight. That is true. Why would he? He was half blind. Why would he donate his eyes? What a poor... They probably (laughs) get worse eyesight than they had. Well, he added, why should I? No one ever gave me anything. Why should I? Because I'm half blind. (laughs) Well, just after midnight, the 20-year-old spree killer was escorted to the execution chamber with his head shaved and dressed in a prison denim shirt and jeans. So he was 20 now. Yeah, now he was. So he must have been about 18. 
Um, yeah, probably around that actually. Yeah, but whatever. Um, but she was a few years younger than him. Okay, so, um, lost your place. <laughs> yes, I did. He was e- escorted to the execution chamber with his head shaved and dressed in a prison denim shirt and jeans. When Charlie was asked if he had any final words, could he you merely, repeat that one more time? No. <laughs> <laughs> he merely shook his head. No, I do not. How do you shake your head? No, I do not. <laughs> I was wondering that. He just shook his head. No. Good lord, man. I was very, very surprised that you did not mention this, but did you know? Because I did not know this, but now I do. That. This inspired several films, including The Sadist, California, Badlands, The Frighteners, and Natural Born Killers. I never knew that that's what inspired Natural Born Killers. Yeah. Badlands, I've got to watch that. I I don't think I've ever seen it. Yeah, it's in 1973 is when it was made. I'm not talking about the new one. Oh, okay. I'm talking about the one from 1973. Yeah. Has anybody ever mentioned slowness to you? Shut your mouth. Be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I do thank you for that interesting tale. Thank you. Now, I thank you. <laughs> no, thank you for no, thank saying you. thank you for... Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> and pause. And I did actually push pause. And unpause. Huh. <laughs> oh my god. Alright. Back from the break, folks. Whole minute and a half break there. Alright. Let me head on with mine. Like I said, I'm going to talk about Carl Robert Brown. Carl. I know, it sounds like a (laughs) slow name, doesn't it? I know it does. And if any Carls listen, you're not slow. Yeah. Carl Robert Brown was an American teacher and a mass murderer who killed eight people and injured another three with a shotgun in a Miami welding shop on August 20th of 1982. My birthday. <laughs> he was later fatally shot and run down by two witnesses when bicycling away from the crime scene. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> his getaway was a bicycle. <laughs> Wait, what did you say that his first job is? No, he was a school teacher. Dang, he's an entrepreneur, ain't he? And he was saving the environment. He was saving the environment and before. And he's a cyclist, yeah. Before it was cool. Mm-hmm. Kind of like that song, Country Before Country. It was cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He was a cyclist. I wonder if he wore a pair of biker shorts. <laughs> I don't know. Brown. Brown was born on November 26 of 1930. Yours was born in 38 or something, I think, wasn't it? Around that. 
He had joined the Navy and was honorably discharged in 1954. People, people later stated that Brown always kept a military bearing about himself, and he was quite militaristic. In 1955, he moved from Chicago to Florida, where he graduated from the University of Miami in 1957, and in 1964 from East Carolina College in Greenville, North Carolina. He earned a master's degree in education. After working briefly for Keys Realty, he got a full-time job at Hialeah Junior High School in 1962 and moonlighted at Miami-Dade Community College as an accounting instructor from 1964 to 1970. Ugh. That's very boring. Oh, my God. I mean, I passed by law firms, and I'm just like, I know you always say the show more. Carl Brown was married twice and had three children. His first wife died, and a second wife, his second marriage failed. And according to his second wife, Sylvia, it failed because he refused to seek psychological help. As a consequence, his condition began to deteriorate, resulting in an increasingly disheveled and gaunt appearance. And he began isolating himself more and more. A neighbor later described him looking as if he were 80 years old. Reportedly, one of his daughters once tried to have him hospitalized, though as his admission had to be voluntary, her request was declined. Additionally, his career began to suffer. Due to problems at Hialeah Junior High, Brown, who was well known as a prejudiced bigot and a blatant racist, who hated everyone, was transferred to Drew Middle School, a school with a black majority in 1981. So probably not the best fit for him. No. There he taught American history until March 3rd of 1982. Oh my gosh, I wouldn't want to hear his take on American history. When he was relieved of his teaching duties for medical leave to treat his psychiatric problems. You said duties. Uh, duties. <laughs> duties. He had a lot of duties. <laughs> Though neighbors described Brown as quiet, kind, and a helpful man, who was working hard to keep his duplex neat and clean, they also praised him overall as a landlord. It was also said that he made a habit of walking into other people's yards early in the morning, waking them up by yelling, United States! <laughs> and that's all. Just, United <laughs> States! When then he just leaves? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> he would just walk into their yards near their windows and yell, United States! Did you say that there was something wrong with him? He needed psychiatric help. <laughs> and that during the night, that shots were heard from his house. It was also reported that he once broke a window when firing a pellet gun and picked grapefruits from neighbor's trees while being in underwear only. <laughs> what? Tighty whities Oh my God. So imagine being awoken by United States looking out your window, seeing a middle-aged school teacher picking grapefruits in underwear. 
Oh my god. He also liked to collect aluminum cans. Oh really? Just a little tidbit there for you. Okay. After a trip abroad, he came back in worse shape than he was before, and he stated that nothing in the United States stood for anything. What? Yeah, he was he was odd. <laughs> he was quirky. Yeah. While Brown wrote in his application for a job as a teacher in 1961 that he, quote, always enjoyed being with younger people and felt that he could benefit these younger people with his abilities, unquote. As his psychological problems aggravated over the years, his work began to suffer. Being seen as a competent teacher for a long time, as his condition worsened, more and more complaints were filed against him. Students began to refuse to sit in his class as he rambled incoherently about his personal problems and topics unrelated to his curriculum. And he conducted confusing conversations where he stringed together totally unrelated things. Students would often take advantage of this trait, ask him a question which would result in him taking the rest of the period to answer. Couldn't you just imagine the torment that these children would give him? <laughs> I know. And how crazy he probably was. Yeah. On one occasion on May 5th, 1977, Brown sent three girls to detention because they refused to sit in his class because they were sick and tired of hearing him talk. Oh my God. He was also known to be very prejudiced at school and to make threatening remarks and to insult people from other races. Well, I mean, you knew that he'd do that. During his time at Hialeah Junior High, Brown wrote a letter to the principal for the enlightenment of the assistant principals. He discussed the misbehavior of his students in rambling and poorly constructed sentences. Quote, I don't read the students their rights as infants. You all do. If you ever study business law until a child is 18, the child can do just about anything the child desires to do and get away with the abuse. Any adult interfering is accountable as an adult. But with infancy laws, the child is a child. Unquote. What? Exactly. Um this was this would be what you would word. have to listen to all. No wonder the students would be like oh my sick and tired of hearing. God. He makes no sense. No sense. In the summer of nineteen eighty one, and just imagine him teaching history. Oh, that'd be so boring. In the summer of 1981, Brown was transferred to Drew Middle School, and there, on December 3rd, he had a dispute with two students, who he accused of throwing books. During the argument, Brown described his sexual behavior with a girlfriend and chased the boys with a stapler. Threatening to staple their mouth shut. Oh, my God. (laughs) He sounds like one of the students. One of the slow students. Very slow students. Yeah. The school board's director of personnel control, 
Pat Gray described this as a classroom incident, wherein Mr. Brown demonstrated a significant lack of adult judgment, an overtone of sexual fixation, and definitive aggression towards students. The school's principal wrote, I found Mr. Brown to be incoherent and unable to grasp the severity of the situation at hand. I also fear for the safety of the students since during my conference with Mr. Brown, he demonstrated no regret for his actions, pointing to the fact that he is a man and any man would have reacted in the same manner. Sure. Principal Octavio Viziedo wrote in his last evaluation about Brown, I found Mr. Brown to be a negative force. Today, I did a follow-up observation of Mr. Brown's second period class, and I continue to be alarmed about the potential for disaster in the class. As you can see, from today's observation, there is absolutely no discipline or control in that class and I am concerned for the safety of the students and also for Mr. Brown. Further, he stated that Brown's class was in total and complete chaos, with students talking constantly, wandering around, and leaving without permission. Brown reacted by writing a response in which he suggested that the principal should seek the help of the school board's employee assistance program and some psychiatric help. <laughs> now, that would feel crap to be told that you needed some psychiatric help from Mr. Brown. Yeah. However, Mr. Brown was referred to the same thing in January of 1982. Psychiatrist Dr. Robert Wagner examined him and assessed that Mr. Brown was suffering from rather severe anxiety associated with some paranoid and grandiose ideas, and that he also demonstrated a probable thinking disorder. What a teacher. Probably public school. Of course. I even, he said that he even thought Wagner had symptoms. It would be, it would affect his work. And that he was also of the opinion that he would be able to continue teaching, though, if he was given some psychotherapy and medication. Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> Wagner also said that although Mr. Brown may appear to be rather unusual and disorganized to the people around him, that he doesn't represent a danger to anybody. After his examination, Brown wrote to Dr. Wagner and said, quote, I wish to thank you for the very interesting and informative meeting I experienced yesterday. Please stress blood analysis, heart cartograph, and urine, plus the other mental health features of your program. I have no clue what that means. What? That's what he wrote on. I mean, oh that I'm telling you, the dude was out there. You can't even um, talk about it because you don't even know what to say. Finally, on March 3rd, Brown was relieved of his duties and was told to seek psychiatrical help. And he agreed to seek further treatment from Wagner. Though, in a meeting with Pat Gray, Brown apparently said, Wagner wants to study me, that's all. 
I can cure Dr. Wagner. I will treat him. I will change his seeds. According to his former wife, Sylvia, Brown asked to return to work two days prior to the shooting, but his psychiatrist, who later stated that Brown showed no aggressiveness at the time, declined his request. On August 19th, the day before the shooting, Brown had a heated argument with George Castellita, an employee at Bob Moore's Welding and Machine Service, Incorporated, about a $20 bill for repairing a lawnmower motor he wanted to use to power his bicycle, saying the work was poorly done. He was also angry because his traveler's check was refused. Realizing that his complaints were making no difference, Brown left the shop, saying that he would come and, and kill everyone. No one took his threat serious. Early the next day, Brown went to a gun store a few blocks from his home and purchased two shotguns, a semi-automatic rifle, and ammunition. An hour before starting his rampage, Brown invited his 10-year-old son to join him in killing a lot of people, telling his son that the final destination would be Hialeah Junior High School. Shortly before 11 o'clock a.m., he arrived at the welding shop on his bicycle. Wow. Wearing a Panama hat and having one of the shotguns slung over his shoulder. He entered the shop through a side door and began shooting, saying that he would send everybody to Germany. According to police, Brown walked through the building, methodically shooting everybody, most of the time at close range and sometimes twice, leaving three victims in the office and others in the work area and the driveway in front of the shop. In the end, six of the 11 employees present lay dead and two more were dying while three injured managed to escape and jump into the car of a passing motorist who brought them to a petrol station a mile away and called for help. When his gun was emptied, Carl stepped out of the store, reloaded and re-entered to shoot two more times before leaving for good and bicycling away, apparently towards Hialeah Junior High School. According to a witness, Brown looked very passive and very nonchalant and wasn't trying to escape, just strictly leaving a crime scene. Another witness put it this way, quote, He got on his bike and pedaled off as if he was going for a stroll on North River Drive, unquote. When Mark Cram, an employee at a nearby metal shop, was told of the massacre, he grabbed a thirty-eight revolver and set out to pursue the shooter in his car. Down the street, he picked up Ernest Hammett, who was trying to flag down cars, and together they tried to hold off the perpetrator. Six blocks away from the crime scene near Miami International Airport, they caught up with Brown and Cram, according to himself, fired a warning shot over Brown's head. Though the bullet hit Brown in the back and later proved to be the cause of his death. When Carl Brown turned in his saddle, aiming at his pursuers with a shotgun, they ran him over with the car, crashing him into a concrete light pole. Brown, who had still 20 shells in his pockets, died shortly afterwards. These are the victims of the massacre. We had Nelson Barrios, 46 years old, and he was a welder. Lonnie Jeffries, 53 years old, was a crane operator. Carl Lee, 47 years old. 
he was the manager. Ernestine Moore, 67 years old, the machine shop owner's mother. Magnum, 78 years old, was the machine shop owner's uncle. Martha Steelman, 29 years old, secretary. Juan Trace Palacios, 38 years old, a machinist. Pedro Vasquez, 44 years old, shop foreman. The injured were identified as Carlos Vasquez Sr., 42 years old, and Carlos Vasquez Jr., 17 years old, and Eduardo Lima, 30 years old. Police found a cassette tape in Brown's house where he called himself Logos, which is a mythical figure he considered to be the controlling principle of the universe. Quote on the tape, it said, This is the Logos speaking. God, through me, is responsible for the good and bad sounds in your head. Unquote. He went on to say, Now I shall say a few good words in your head before I return you to the bad sounds in your head. The Logos is the spark of God, the most logical. I am indestructible on earth. No charges were filed against Cram. And that's what I have. That is Carl Brown. He was definitely, definitely needing psychiatric help, and it should have been more aggressively. He should have been committed, and this might not have would have happened. But that's all for this week. Like I said, again, sorry for it being late. Thanks for sticking with us, though. And remember, please, please, Write us a review, rate us on whatever platform you use. Thank you for those who already have. And also send us some feedback. And if you want a sticker, shoot us an email with your address and we'll get that out to you. You can email us at badintheboondocks at gmail.com. Till next time, don't be bad in the boondocks.